0: question constantly comes before us but it's this question what does it take to be a Christian what does it take to be a Christian you know, I think this is a question that many of us have approached, uh, and we've maybe experienced it in different ways, maybe depending on the denominational background that you've come from, uh, maybe depending on uh, people you've interacted with, acted with. And this very question, or your desire for the answer to this question, has done one of two things. It's either drove you closer to the Lord to seek Him and what He has, or maybe for some of you here this morning, it's actually drawn you away from seeking God because you think to yourself, there's no way I have what it takes. There's no way I can approach Approach God in this way. There's no way I can give myself to God or or that he would want me or that he would take me or that he has anything that he can do with me or for me because of who I am, where I've come from or what I've done. You know, and so this morning as we as we navigate this, I want us to kind of strip away uh, the preconceived thought that we have about what God expects of us or this question of what it takes to be a Christian as we navigate that, because the way we conceive it is things that we've taken in our mind and we've kind of we've it's, it's been molded by something, you know, and for a lot of us, maybe some of you, you have fallen under, under the weight of this question uh, that uh, or this response that a real qu- Christian does this or a real qu- Christian looks this way or acts this way or does this. And that's how they're in good with God. That's how they do what it takes is because of something that they're contributing to the cause. And so. You know, I know for me in my life growing up, there were times that I felt the weight, as Martin Luther would have said, there's no way I'm getting to heaven. There's no way I'm making it. There's no way that my, my faith is not strong enough. My good works are not good enough that there's just not enough within me to get me to this point where I can say that I have what it takes to be a Christian. I think at some point in our lives, maybe even this morning, we've fallen under the weight of this question what does it take to be a christian or maybe a better way of saving it saying it is how much is enough to get into god's good graces you know because for us as individuals uh whether it's in our marriage in our workplace or whatever it is we we tend to figure out what it takes to get into the good graces of that individual we're trying to get into right right? Happy wife, happy life. I mean, guys, you learn that. You figure that out. You know, not, not, not pretending, but for real. You know, we want to keep our spouses happy, so we figure out what to do to get into their good graces. You know, our kids, they figure those things out. I'm learning that my teenager, newest new teenager, is figure, he has figured that out. He knows how to get into our good graces. He knows how to butter us up, right? He's embarrassed now because I've called him out. But you know, as we navigate in Second Samuel 7, we, we see one of the most glorious prophecies that we'll see in the entire Old Testament. Because what we see is we see God lay before David... This, this covenant he lays before David this his perspective how God what God requires of man and what God is doing in the midst of man's doing what God is required what how God is navigating things and so there's two things that I want us to see this morning from second Samuel 7 is the first thing that I want us to see is what he gives to us what is God giving to us what is God giving to David in this moment in second Samuel 7 and uh, we'll pick up we're going to read several verses together but I uh, uh, we won't read them in detail, but I want us to see what is happening in this text—a very important text for the Christian today. Second Samuel, chapter seven, verse two. David says this, as David has become king, he's, risen, he's he's at this point now where he's established Saul, has passed away, and so he is the king, he has been anointed, he is in that place. And so as he's in this position, in 2 Samuel verse 1, it says, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. So we see David established where he is. I love how the text even calls him the king, establishing that this person is the person that God wants to be where he is. This is the king. And not only is he the king who has been put in this position, but it also says, and you'll see this as a theme throughout this text, that God has given him rest from his enemies that he has given him solitude, that he has given him peace, that he has given him uh, a sense of shalom or peace, as the Bible would say. And so he has come to this point, and he says, as he's sitting in his in his palace, he looks around at everything he has, and he says, "I, I dwell in this house of cedar, and the, and the Lord dwells." And remember, the presence of the Lord was confined to, or per their uh, understanding of it, of God. You know, God's dwelling place with His people was in the Ark of the Covenant, this beautiful uh, piece of furniture that they had put together, that they believe, you know, that that was God's uh, symbolic presence with them. And so this was special to them. It was important to them. And so David says, he says, I live in all this wealth. I live in all this prosperity. And God still dwells in a tent. And so that bothers David. That bothers David very much. And what we're seeing is we're seeing a glimpse of the heart of David. That, that David was considering God in his life. That in the midst of everything God had given him, he never forgot who God was. That even in this moment, he, he's considering God and he's thinking to himself that God deserves as much or more, at least, than what I have, right? And so David is approaching God with just this this concern, this conviction. David lived comfortably, uh, which God had given him. You know, and this is in contrast to later on. You know, we're talking about the temple of God being built, and then when the uh, Israelites go into exile, the temple is destroyed. Well, later on, we see the people of Israel in a completely different mindset uh, then David is in this moment. In, in Haggai, Haggai uh, 1 verses 2 through 6, uh, God says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Is it a time for your, you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? And so we see a different mindset because after that, he says uh, that that you uh, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you have never your, full, uh, your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So he's this complete contrast of David where David was concerned for God. He wanted to build this palace for the presence of God to dwell in where the people later on in Haggai chapter 1, it says that that they were doing things. They were pouring into things emptily. That they, they, were, they were the wages they were making. It was as if they were being put in a bag with holes in it. That their life was being invested in things that weren't filling them, that weren't warming them, that weren't providing for them over Ultimately, and so what David is doing is he's bringing focus to a, to a concern and a conviction about God's place in our life. About God's place in our life. I pray that we could approach God with the same conviction that David does right here. That he, he has a desire to see God treated with the utmost in his life. With the utmost in his life. That the place God holds is a place of, of, of honor, of worth, of value. You know, we see God's, we see uh, David's heart and his consideration of God and his place in a mindset of gratitude and concern for God's glory. Later on, Solomon would even acknowledge this, his son. In Second Chronicles 6, he says, But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. It is good to have a concern and a conviction for the place of God in our lives. It is good. But what we have to understand is that David's position on what he, was, what he wanted to do for God wasn't from this place of trying to earn something, but it was his conviction. But what God begins to lay out before David is to help us understand what it takes to be a Christian, what it takes to be in God's good graces. And I love how God, almost in a sense of sarcasm, says this to the prophet Nathan in uh, verse 5. He said, would you build me a house to dwell in? Would you build me a house to dwell in? Verse four, it says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, go and tell my servant David, would you build a house for me to dwell in? You know, and so what he's doing is is he's bringing uh, David's focus to what his true calling is for God's people. Because what David was falling into is David was falling into the world system. The way that the world system worked, the way that uh, the, the the nations worked, is that they had a God that they worshipped, right? And so in their mind, what they would do is they would build a temple. They would build a pyramid. They would build a statue, beautiful piece of of, 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 of architecture for their god, and in their mind they believed that if they did a good enough job that their god would be honored in their nation and that their god would be satisfied and that their god would be given glory. And because of that, because they built this building, because they built this statue, because they built this pyramid or whatever it was in the honor of their god, that their god would be honored in their nation. And then because of that, that god would bless that king's kingdom. And so I, I believe that that's kind of the mindset, because it's the mindset of the culture, that's kind of the mindset that David's approaching here when he's like, look, I, I want to I honor God, not so much for himself because David's heart is in a different place than that, but he's still seeing it through those lenses of that I've got to build this temple for God to get in God's good graces or to, to make God known. I have to build this building. It's going to take this work from me that I do. But the thing that that God begins to lay out and understand uh, to help David understand is there is nothing that we give God that is gained for him. There is nothing we give God that is gained for him. There is nothing that we offer him that betters him because he is the best. He is the he is all powerful. He has he is all knowing. You know, and then he continues in Second Samuel seven, six through seven. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all people of Israel. The thing that we have to know, you know, and I love this because the people of Israel did nothing to bring themselves out of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt and he's acknowledging that he says, listen, I've not lived in a house I have not lived in a man-made structure since the moment that I brought the people of Israel out of slavery. There is nothing that they have done for me that has contributed to me. All that has been happening is that I've been given to them. And not only that, but he says, but I have been with all people. Listen, we serve a God that is where we are. And he's establishing that right off the bat. Not because they had done anything to earn it. Not because they deserved it. He said, these are my people and I am with my people. You know, this is something called the incarnation principle, that God is taking on our circumstances, sharing with us. God is laying before them who He is and what He is to His people. God is with us. God is with us. God is with His people. Not because they've done anything other than trusted in Him. Coming where we are, the infinite dwelling with the finite. You know, I think we take that for granted too often we truly consider what that means for us in our life that God is with his people then verses 8 through 10 uh, in 2nd Samuel 7 he says he reminds David he begins to remind David he says I took you from the pasture and I made you a prince and he says I have been with you wherever I mean, let us think back. When we talked about David, the choosing of David, the anointing of David, God reminds him. He says, when I found you, you were in a pasture. You weren't, you weren't doing anything remotely close to what you're doing now. But I took you. I found you. God's reminding him, everything you're doing right now is because I was with you and choosing you and plucking you out from the very beginning. There is nothing that we choose or do that God has not already begun to establish in our life. That God is not reaching out, leaning into where we are first. David was in a field when God came calling. him. He says, I took you. You didn't leave that pasture. I pulled you from that pasture. You know, and then I think back on my life, and I think about the mistakes I've made and the failures that I've, I've had. And I think back to to where God has delivered me and brought me in, and and I constantly have to remind myself, I, I didn't bring myself from that place. God leaned in where I was and took me from it. That God has led me this whole way, that God has provided for me, and that there was at no point where God was like, oh, thanks, Jake, finally you've acknowledged me. No, God said, I'm here with you. I'm leaning in where you are, and I'm leading you where you should go. Just grab a hold and follow me. We serve a God that is where we are. And then in verse 11, he says, he says that I will give you rest and will make you a house. You know, and so this is where we have to understand where what it takes to become a Christian, what it takes to be and live as a Christian. God tells him, he says, you're not going to build me a house you 're not going to build me this man-made structure this this work of man- made hands he says you're not going to do this for me but what he says to David he ups the anti one and he says i 'm going to build you a house but he's not talking about a house a physical structure he's not talking about this dwelling place that he can walk into that can that can uh, erode that can be burnt that can be broken down he says no i'm going to build you a dynasty i 'm going to build you a legacy i 'm going to build you a kingdom and a foundation that can't be shaken by anything, and it's not going to be built by your hands, but it's going to be built by what I do. He begins to establish what is called the Davidic covenant. You know, there are five covenants that are established in the Bible, and they all kind of crescendo into the moment where we experience Jesus in the new covenant today. We see his covenant with Noah, where he says that he won't destroy the land again. You know, he won't destroy God's people, the, the people again for their sin. In uh, Abraham's covenant, he says that if you'll go into the land that I've led you, then I will make you uh, give you a, an offspring that is more numerous than the stars, and that from your from your uh, from your lineage that great people will come from that. And then with uh, Moses, he says that I will lead you out of slavery. I will lead you into the promised land, and I won't let you go back. You know, and then. Uh, with david he says he says i'm going to establish you a kingdom that will last forever a dynasty and uh, and, and that, that i will not remove my steadfast love from you as we'll see further down and then the new covenant all of that crescendoing to the moment with the new covenant that has no stipulations other than trusting in jesus to find ourselves in the lineage of david and to be able to enjoy what it means to be in god's house in god's dynasty in god's family He's laying this before David to remind him that you are resting in a finished work, that you would rest in a house, a dynasty, a family, a legacy that will last beyond any structure, any work that man can do. What does it take to be a Christian? It takes resting in the finished work of that carpenter, resting in the finished work of that dynasty, of that house, not based off of my work not based off of of me working to get into God's good graces. God says to David, he says, it's not you building me a house, it's me building you a house. It's you trusting in me. In my work, And then he continues on in verses 12 through 15. He says, I will raise up your offspring. He says, I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So every prophecy, the thing that we have to understand, every prophecy has two parts to it. An immediate effect and a ultimate effect. The immediate effect is that he's talking about Solomon. He's talking about his son Solomon, because remember, up to this point, the king of Israel has not had a, uh, a monarchy, has not had a family who has taken over. Saul being the first king and his uh, children did not become king. He took it from him and gave it to David. Now he's telling him, I'm going to establish a kingship in your family. Then he tells him, he says that I will establish it. It will stand forever. And then he continues on and tells him that if, when he sins, that I will discipline him. But my love will not depart from him like it did Saul. And so he's reminding him of the security that he is offering him, that whenever, I, whenever you are in me and established in my kingdom, that I will not leave you. So the immediate effects, he's talking about Solomon. Listen, Solomon makes a lot of mistakes, does a lot of things wrong. He does build the temple, but he does a lot of things wrong. But even in that, God's love does not depart from him the way it did from Saul because God had established a covenant with David and his family. And then the ultimate the ultimate meaning is Jesus. Now, that gets confusing when we read that verse. When he, uh, when he uh, would sin, when he commits iniquity or commits sin, I would discipline him. But when we consider that in light of the ultimate, the immediate, he's talking about Solomon. The ultimate, what he's talking about is he's talking about Jesus bearing our iniquity. Bearing our shame. You know, referencing back to Isaiah 53, 5, when he says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and with, and with his wounds we are healed. God is creating a kingdom that is forever, something that withstands force, outlives kingdoms, can't be destroyed or withdrawn. It's not about us giving, but what he is doing. God is doing something with God's people. And he doesn't need us to do that but he will use us and we can be the benefactors of what God is doing amongst his people if we trust in him in faith walk in step with what he's given us you know in uh, the book of Esther when he's talking here you know she's preparing to do something uh, and and he, and he tells her the prophet tells her for if you keep silent at this time if you don't do anything relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish and and no and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this so he is the prophet is telling her here he says look if you don't do it someone else will and you won't receive the benefits of what it's like to experience what God is doing among his people listen God doesn't need us to do anything but if we want to experience the blessing of walking in step with God's faithful work then we have to let our yes be yes and step into what he has for us. God's work will get done, but we'll miss the benefits of it if we neglect to follow Christ in faith, if we neglect, uh, neglect leaning into what God is calling us to at the church, if we we'll neglect to do what God wants to do in our families, if we neglect to do what God wants us to do in our relationships, that we'll miss the benefits. Even though God has an ultimate plan that he wants to accomplish, we will miss it. And don't we want to do that? Don't we want to step into what God has for us and enjoy every bit of the benefit of what it means to walk in faith with Christ? God has invited us into that. God has invited us into that. And we have to understand that the world and, and, and what David and what everyone else and what even us as Christians, we have to understand Is that the world is not supposed to look at believers and say, wow, look what great and awesome things we've done for God. The world is supposed to look at Christians and say, wow, look at what great and awesome things God has done for them. That's how the world has changed. Is because God looks at believer, uh, people look at believers and they say, man, God has been good to those people. That's what the Bible, the narrative of the Bible constantly communicates. God's people doing things wrong, getting into trouble. And what does God do? He bails them out. And then everybody says, the God of Israel is great. You know, when Jesus came onto the scene... The miracles weren't just for the sake of the people, but they were to establish uh, the authority of Christ to let people see that God is good and that He is doing something among His people. And so not only is it what we, He gives us, but then to finish up this morning, what we gain from that, what we gain. And I love the way David responds down in verse 18. It says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And this is what he says. He says, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? This is the place where we truly understand who God is and what it does. This is the place where David began to understand what it takes to be a believer, what it takes to be a follower of God is to be to this place where we understand who am I and what do I have that I would ever do anything for God or that he would ever choose to do something for me. David said, you took me from the pasture. Why? What had I done? He's starting to recognize who am I and what have I done that you would be here with me. You know, who are we even this morning and what have we done that the presence of God would be dwelling with us this morning? He is here with us among his people. He's healing hearts. He's drawing people together. God is always among his people. And I love that David, in his mindset, he just comes and sits before him. Reminding me, Psalm 46, just be still and know that I am God. You know, and this isn't us hiding. This isn't us being lazy. This is an active sitting. This is an active stillness, a reliance, an active seeking, an active dependence on God and who he is and what he can do. John 15, 5, it says, "From apart from me, you can do nothing. What we gain is perspective. What we gain is power. What we gain is a confidence to step into the world around us and to walk knowing that God is good and who am I? Who am I in light of how great God is? Who am I in light of what God has done? And that isn't meant to deter us from what we do for the Lord. That's meant to empower us to step into what God has done for us. Because we understand we're not doing it in our own power, but doing it in the power of the God who brought us out of the pasture, who brought us away from doing the medial tasks that we were doing before, and now he's finally given us purpose to our task. He's given me purpose as a parent. He's given me purpose as a husband. He's given me purpose as a nurse. He's given you purpose in the spaces of life where you walk. But it's only in God that we get that power. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Acts one four, He tells them to be staying and waiting for the Holy Spirit, the promise of God, waiting on the Spirit because we can't do anything separate from what God has given us the power to do. Then in Second Samuel seven twenty one. He says, because of your promise, according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. God is not keeping secrets from us. He has given us his revealed words so that we would know about his goodness and his greatness and his love for each and every one of us in here. Even before we've acknowledged him, he loves us. He has purpose for us that he's drawing us into. Even our little babies here this morning, you guys, God has love and purpose for you. He wants to do something with you and for you, even if you don't quite understand that yet. And there's two specific things that I believe he gives us, and then we'll be done this morning. The first thing is he, he gives us confidence to stand in. 2 Samuel 7, he says, Therefore, you are great, O Lord. Therefore, you are great because of all you've done, God, you are great. Uh, Verse 28, when he says, oh, Lord, God, it's this phrase. Another way of translating that is the Jehovah Adonai or the Lord is sovereign. David is acknowledging that God is in control, that God is in control. And he's the one that sustains. He's the one that upholds. He is the one that protects and leads and directs. And I love that in verse 27, he says, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer. It is because we understand that God has His hand on every single thing in our life that we have the ability to stand in His confidence, to rest in His goodness. Now the second thing He gives us is courage to walk in. Confidence to stand in and courage to walk. In verse 25, that phrase, O oh Lord God, is translated to a different meaning in name of who God is. God is as Jehovah Elohim, the God of power. That not only is God sovereign, but that God is all powerful. And that there is, not, there is a, this is not an excuse to sit, but to step out in confidence from God. And he says in verse 29, he says, so that it may continue forever before you. He's talking about his family. He's talking about his steps. He says, so that it may continue before you. Not that so that I may back up and just let God do his thing, but so that I may be involved, so that I may lean in, so that I might have courage to walk in the power of Jehovah Elohim, the God of power. You know, and what David does, even though God tells him, hey, look, you're not going to build this house, that your son's going to build this house. And so remember the immediate he's talking about Solomon building the house and then the ultimate he's talking about Jesus building a house or a kingdom co- New Kingdom Covenant. But in the immediate what we see David do, even though God told him, look, you're not going to build the house. You know what David did? David went and got every single thing that his son would need to build this temple for God. Even though it wasn't on him to do the task, he was the one tasked with prepping for the work to be done. You know, in, in 1 uh, Chronicles 22, it, it tells everything that David did in preparation. Listen, this is the place where we function in the work that God is doing. That even if we aren't the ultimate establishment, even though if we aren't the king to accomplish the task, even if we aren't the ones that, have been, that, that are at the ultimate goal of everything to be accomplished, what we are working for and towards is towards a king or towards a kingdom that is building a house, that is preparing a place, and that we as people, as parents, as husbands, as wives, as individuals, living and walking in the life that we have, we are the ones gathering up the supplies for the kingdom. That even though we aren't building the house, we are doing the preparation. And what does that preparation look like? Maybe it's leaning into our spouse's life and developing our relationship together in the Lord. Maybe it's leaning into our children's lives and leading them in devotion day after day. Leading them in the the word of the Lord. Walking through the, the, the task that God has given us. And so to finish up, why does this matter this morning for us? Because the reality is, as we approach our day-to-day life with Christ, with this question, what does it take to be a believer, or how do we get into God's good graces, the thing that we have to understand is that we will never find rest in God's grace if we are working to be in His good graces. We will never find rest in God's grace if we are working to be in God's good graces. Because then that's us building the house. That's us trying to earn our place. When God says, I'm going to build it, you just, do the let, you just do the prep. You just lean into the, the task that I've called you to. And he said, I'll establish the kingdom. I'll establish the dynasty. I'll give you the stability and the power that you need. You know, too often we approach our faith like a cover charge faith system. Like it's some type of union that we have to pay dues to. And that if that's what motivates us, then we will always be falling behind. Because our goodness is like filthy rags, the Bible tells us. That we're imperfect people seeking a perfect God. And where we begin to finally walk and stride in the goodness of God's calling for us in our families and in our lives is when we understand that the work of salvation happened with Jesus on the cross. And when we put our faith there, then the establishment is done. And then we just do the prepping, we just do the walking. That we don't walk to gain approval. You know, it's this idea, and this has been the motivating idea for for me and everything, that I work from grace, not for grace. I want to say that one more time, that we work not for grace, but we work from grace. That God has given us a grace when we put our faith in Christ, that God has given us grace and that we work from that. You know, and there should be a work. We should want to work for the Lord. Just like David, he wanted to build the house. Even though ultimately God is building the house and for us. We should want to do good for God. But understanding that the greatest work ever done has already been done on our behalf that the cover charge has already been paid, that the price has already been accounted for, that we would be resting in the finished work of Christ. that's how this works. So how do we do that? First thing, church, is that we know that he does the work from start to finish, from salvation to sanctification to glorification. God does the work. We just rest in that work, and the last thing is that we embrace the call He has made for us, walking confidently in His kingdom promise. Do boldly in, in, in our gathering of the supplies for the builder. As we gather in our life, as we, 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 we bring to the table our families, as we bring to the table our finances, as we bring to the table our, our time, and we lay those before the Lord as our building process structuring, firming up, and providing through our obedience, not only for ourselves, but for those around us who would benefit. Church, would we know that, that we work not for grace but from grace, and understand that God is the builder, that God is the the kingdom establisher, and that if we want to know what it takes to be a Christian, what it takes is surrender, what it takes is faith in Christ, just resting in Him, and then allowing that to motivate and move us in every direction that we go in our life. Church, I want to pray for us this morning, and then we'll be done, and I pray that we could be challenged in that, I pray that we could lead our families in that, and I pray that would be the motivating factor that brings us to the foot of the cross every single day, that we work from grace, not for grace, and that what it takes to be a follower of Jesus, what it takes to be a good Christian is complete surrender even in our insecurities, even in our failures, even in our problems. Surrender to Christ, surrendering those things to him, and that he'll do the building. He'll do the building. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I just ask you to be with our church, be with our people, be with the people listening online, God. Just help us to know that it is not us climbing up a hill to get to you, God, but you've leveled the playing field, you've leveled the ground, and you've invited us through an open door. You said, come. You've set a place at a table and you've said, come, that the work has been done. God, help us to quit running away from you because we feel like we haven't done enough, that we haven't been good enough, that you haven't, uh, we haven't been obedient enough, that we haven't come from the right family, that we haven't come from the right place. God, help us to see that you've made an open invitation within the new covenant of Jesus Christ that have no stipulations other than just resting in you. And that because there's no stipulations in gaining, there's no stipulations in losing. God, that once we are there, that there's nothing that can take us from your grasp. There is nothing that can take us out of your hand. No mistake, no sin, no, no nothing that we do. God, help us to walk in that confidence. Help us to live in that confidence. God, help us to share that confidence. God, let that confidence be the thing that drives us into the lives of other people, being loving and accepting and encouraging. And God, bringing them before the foot of the cross and letting that conviction and that love and that grace and that direction come from you. Father, we love you. God, we thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church, can we-